The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. The phone lines are wide open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Yes, 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 it is that time of the week. You've got questions, we've got answers. So phone lines are open right now. Our call screeners are standing by. Here's the number to call. 866-348-7884. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Any question of any kind that relates in any way to any subject matter that the line of fire, yours truly, we ever touch on, phone lines wide open. Again, 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go straight to the phones, beginning with Chandler in Ada, Oklahoma. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, great. So I have a two-part question. Um, I understand that, you know, no one is justified by the law, but during the days of the Old Covenant, God had gave Israel specific ordinances that they were expected to obey, and any stranger that was sojourning with them that wanted to be a citizen, they were expected to obey them. So during those days, would a Gentile who is on the complete opposite side of the world, on the opposite side of the globe, would they have been expected to keep those ordinances as if it was like the law of the land that God had placed on everyone? Yeah, absolutely not, except for fundamental moral laws that God gave to the whole world, like don't murder, for example. That was something for which God would judge people universally. You see in Amos 1 and 2 is God pronounces judgment on the nation surrounding Israel and then gets to uh, Judah and Israel themselves, that he rebukes them for violations, humanitarian violations, breaking covenants with one another, ripping up pregnant women, uh, immoral, inhumane acts, acts of cruelty and violence. So God will judge the whole world for those things, but the people of Israel were given specific commandments they were to live by. In rabbinic tradition, this becomes the separation between the so-called seven laws of Noah, which the rabbis read into Genesis 2 and Genesis 9. For example, laws against blasphemy, laws against murder, theft, adultery, those being universal for everyone, and then the so-called 613 commandments of the Torah, which were just for Israel. And uh, it's very clear in Scripture that God does not judge the foreign nations based on, for example, dietary laws or the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath, those were things that God gave to Israel, not to the whole world. Okay. And then my kind of follow-up question to that, so on the reverse end, so like dietary laws, for example, that God gave to Israel, where they couldn't eat pork, for example, but now that we're under a new covenant, it's okay to eat pork. So what was the point of the commandment in the first place? Right. The point of the commandment was to keep Israel separate from the nations. And by having dietary laws that restricted their table fellowship with others, and by reminding them that they were separated people, this was something constant for them to say, okay, we're different, we're separate, we belong to God, we are holy, we are distinguished from everyone else, and therefore even in our food 
even in our eating and our table fellowship, we must be separate from others. Uh, the other thing is there were probably some parts of the law that were given for, for health purposes. Uh, in mm-hmm. other words, many of the animals that you couldn't eat, it's, it's best not to eat for health purposes in general. But that being said, the purpose of the prohibition was not just health. It was more separation. And with the coming of the new covenant, that separation is not needed between Jew and Gentile. Now, there, there are many believers that still feel the dietary laws are good and many Jewish believers that still live by them as part of their solidarity with the Jewish people. But certainly, it's not something that was binding or is binding for a New Testament believer the way it was for an Old Testament Jew. Also, you'll notice in, in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, where Jesus explains that what you eat doesn't defile you, but what comes out of your heart defiles you. So whether it's eating with unwashed hands and now the food is technically unclean and, and now you eat that and you're unclean. No, he said that doesn't actually defile you. It, it's what comes out of your heart that defiles. Immediately after that, Jesus goes into Gentile territory and heals the daughter of a Gentile woman. It, it's as if he's now putting in action the principle that he just taught. Hey, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jonathan in Centralon, Washington. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Can you hear me okay? Yes, thank you. All right. Uh, so I had a question. Uh, it's probably a question you've uh, received before, uh, but you know how... Um, uh, when you're talking to someone, normally an unbeliever, or or maybe they are a believer and their walk with God isn't very solid, and you're talking to them about sin and holiness and repentance, and they always they respond with Jesus said not to judge, and so so uh, 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 you're telling them that they need to repent, but then they respond with you need to not judge, right? That's that's how they respond. Now. Uh, Frank Turek uh, has this interpretation of the, the reading of Scripture that Jesus never actually said not to judge. He only said uh, 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 that we ought to judge righteously and, and fairly, right? That's Frank Turek's reading of the Scripture, and I think that makes a lot of sense. But how would you respond to uh, uh, someone who says, you shouldn't be judging me whenever you tell them to repent? And, and what is what is your reading of the text? Do you agree with Frank Turek? Uh, yes, so... The first thing is we have to look at everything Scripture says about judgment and, and judging. But what I would do is my initial response, I would say to this person, is racism wrong? Slavery wrong? In other words, pick something that they're likely going to agree with you is, is wrong, and then ask them, okay, so can I judge this person for being a racist? Can I judge this person for owning slaves or for kidnapping people in Africa? Well, yeah, okay, aren't you judging? Is child trafficking wrong? Should we judge the child trafficker? So you want them to say, yes, we should make certain judgments. You know, Frank's answer is always, well, you just judge me for judging you. And then the next thing, the soundbite answer is that what Jesus meant when he said, judge not lest you be judged, was don't judge critically, don't judge unfairly, don't judge hypocritically, don't condemn but make righteous judgments. So you have Matthew 7, 1, also repeat it in Luke 6, don't judge lest you be judged. You also have John seven twenty four. stop judging by outward appearances, but make righteous judgments. Uh, not only so, 
When you go through 1 Corinthians, in the second chapter, Paul says the spiritual man makes judgments about all things. 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I don't even judge myself. 1 Corinthians 5, he says, judge those within the body. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you'll judge angels. 1 Corinthians 11, we should judge ourselves before we partake of communion. So the word is used with different nuances and from different angles. But again, my response, if someone says, well, you're judging me, I would say, well, do we agree that we should judge certain things? If we saw racism, we should say it's wrong. Were we wrong to judge the, the killer of George, of George Floyd and say what he did was wrong? Do we agree that we should condemn slavery, that we should condemn child trafficking? Okay, so then the thing we want to do is judge fairly, not hypocritically, not condemn, not superficially, but judge fairly. That's what we want to do. So how does your life, how does my life line up with God's standards? Let God be the judge. And that's also the way that I would say things practically, Jonathan. Well, how about we let God be the judge and let's look at our lives based on his standards. And if you want to get into it further, you say, well, are all judgments wrong when, when someone appears before a court and, and evidence is presented? Shouldn't we make a judgment if someone's guilty? Shouldn't we convict them? Shouldn't Jeffrey Epstein have been convicted of certain crimes for pedophilia? And then you want to get past the superficial where someone will agree. Yeah, I, I agree that this could be wrong or that could be wrong or we should make certain judgments. And then we agree, okay, but we don't want to judge hypocritically. We don't want to judge superficially and we don't want to condemn. So that's how I would respond in short and in depth. All right. All right. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you very much. Sure thing. Glad to help. 866 348 8884. Uh, let's go over to Taylor in State College, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thanks for having me on here and answering my question. Let me just say first how much I appreciate your ministry and how much it's blessed me in the last three years that I've been listening. Well, thank um, you. My joy. Yeah, so my, I have one question and then maybe another if there's time. Psalm 3723 in the mm -hmm. NKJV. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, yep. and he delights in his way. Yep. From the Hebrew, or anything else, is there a way to know uh, who the indefinite pronouns refer to here? In other words, uh, is the verse saying that a good man delights in the ways of the Lord, or that the Lord delights in the ways of, his, uh, of the righteous who walk with him? Um, yeah, so uh, syntactically, I would think that most all translations... Um, are going to read it. Well, many will read it the same way, but it's, it's one of those things where it's a judgment call. In other words, you have to say, okay, what's the most likely reference? So uh, literally, uh, just translating Hebrew, uh, literally, so uh, from, from the Lord are the steps of, of a man, um, uh, so there, from the Lord, the steps of the man are ordered for Darkoyech Potts, and he uh, delights in his way. So who is, who is the likely he there? That's, that's the question. So, so you, have, uh, you have man referenced, right? And his steps are ordered. And then he delights in his way. So the NJV, for example, the steps of a man are made firm by the Lord. That would, that would be a better way established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, capital H, but it, it could be read 
either way, theoretically, I, I'm reading it the same way as the NJV, that that uh, it's God who does this uh, when he delights in this person's way or and God delights in that person's way, then he establishes and orders his steps. But um, hang on, we'll, we'll get your other question on the other side of the break. But the Hebrew is potentially as ambiguous with he as the English, it just syntactically the most logical reading is, as, as just said, from the NJV. Okay, we'll be right back. We've got one phone line open if you want to try to get in. We will be right back. Stay here. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. We we have uh, a stir of excitement in our ministry offices this week because the first copies in advance, oh, this is over three weeks early. We are really excited. The first copies of the political seduction of the church are now in my newest book, how millions of American Christians confuse politics with the gospel. This will inform you. This will deal with big issues as the church called to take over society. What can we learn from the 2020 elections? Uh, How do we make an impact within the world of politics without getting seduced by power and corruption? How do we, how do we do it? What, What can we learn? How can we grow and move forward? How did so many prophets get things so wrong about Trump? What happened with QAnon? It is a no-holds-barred, eye-opening book, but one that will help you, inspire you, stir you, and encourage you. Friends, we can do better. So you can still go to our website, askdrbrown.org, and order right now. And, And as soon as we get your order, we'll sign the book, send it out. So this is first edition, so... We number the first, whether it's 100, 200, 300, whatever. We number the first orders. I sign each one, put a scripture in. In fact, I haven't thought of the scripture I'm going to put in yet. I try to have a a specific verse that ties in specifically with the book. I haven't decided that yet, but we pray over the books. So they're they're on my desk. God willing, Monday, we sign, send out the first copy. So go ahead and order now at askdrbrown.org. Okay, uh, so Taylor, second question, back to you. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you. So in the Old Testament, uh, like First Samuel thirteen fourteen, I was listening to a podcast with an Old Testament Christian scholar recently who said that when it says David was a man after God's own heart, there's a Hebrew idiom there that actually doesn't speak so much about the character of David as much as it does God's character and um, sovereign selection of David. And I just wanted to know if that was correct because it sort of changes the way I, I had seen the meaning of that. Uh, not in my view, not, not in my opinion. No, uh, I, I read it the same as others have read it. And the way that God commands David for being a man after his own heart. Uh, I don't see that as having to do with sovereign selection as much as why God was drawn to David and why God continued to work with David despite his, his flaws and the way he's described elsewhere in terms of 
righteous and keeping God's commandments. So uh, I would imagine that a, a Christian scholar would have looked at this and had a reason for the position based on a study that he had done. But in my own view, absolutely no reason to depart from the way we've always understood it. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. You're very welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Eugene in Arkansas. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me okay, sir? Sure can. Yes, sir. So my question, um, I uh, hope to get my master's degree in um, Christian theology. I want to start that in about a year and a half or so. And But I do a lot of extra reading on my own time. And having a charismatic background, I obviously notice a lot of the differences between my own theological convictions concerning the activity and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in reference to a lot of the Reformers I typically read from, I, I appreciate their knowledge, and they have a lot to offer myself in the body of Jesus Christ, but some of my mentors who kind of have the same background as me, I, I talk about the contention that I have with some of their views, and their response is pretty abrasive, if I may be frank, telling me to, to maybe ditch their resources and listen to people who are more for our, our movement, but I don't believe I need to divide because of my theological convictions are just different from theirs. And so for you who have gone through school and sat under people who have different views and convictions than your own theology, how have you maintained your stance, even when your stance is sometimes very, very different on issues of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, so uh, Eugene, there are core things that shape who I am in God. There are deep convictions I have based on intensive study of Scripture over the period of many years. There are experiences I've had in my walk with God that shape who I am. And to deny those things would be to fundamentally deny the Word of God and the work of God in my own life. So they're non-negotiable. They are foundations. They are like the, the roots of the tree that go deep underground and nourish the rest of the tree. So there could be a branch here and there where there could be variation or deviation, but not the fundamentals. So the fundamentals of my faith in Jesus being Messiah and Lord, that's forged by the way God saved me. And then in the crucible of dialogue and discussion with rabbis and Jewish leaders in my early years in the Lord, when all of that was challenged, my firm belief in the authority of Scripture and inspiration of Scripture was forged in the midst of, of God's Word being real to me, and then the challenges of studying with professors and scholars who didn't believe Scripture the way I did, and reading the critical literature and seeing, is there something to this? Uh, my core beliefs in the gifts and power of the Spirit for today, the way God saved me, then my trying to deny them, uh, yet the Word of God being too clear to me on that, then my experience of mighty outpouring of the Spirit have me firmly believe these things, so I don't need to see someone healed to believe that God is the healer. And if I see something flaky or wrong, I'm not going to react against it the way I might have decades ago and been tr prone to throw out the baby with the bathwater. At the same time, uh, having been a Calvinist for five years and immersing myself in a lot of Calvinist literature and Puritans and Spurgeon and people like that, I, I learned to love so much of their heart for God. I learned to appreciate their spirituality. I learned to honor the insights they had. So even where I have differences, I can still 
embrace that and, and be blessed by it. Uh, just like if, if Pastor MacArthur uh, was doing some great expository preaching on a passage, say, in First Peter, and I thought, wow, what a great job. When he was on with Ben Shapiro, I loved the way he opened up Isaiah 53 to him in the gospel. I, I thought it was masterful. Of course, I categorically differ with some of his characterization of the charismatic movement, but that doesn't mean I can't receive from all the good. So the things that become foundational in your life, Eugene, they're there. They're going to be there through the storms. And those are forged, like I said, by the word of God and by the work of God in our lives. And that makes us who we are. And, and over the years, those things deepen in our walk and experience and in our study. They just become more and more confirmed as we go on. And the other things are very, very secondary. You know, it's, it's like uh, Nancy and I can have an argument, but it's utterly meaningless in terms of our relationship. Meaning we've, we've been married over 46 years and, and we are committed to each other with our blood and love each other to the core of our being. And an argument is something that we'll fix and get over. It's no big deal because of the core of our relationship. So Eugene, it, it would be the same with these key things that are foundational in my life in God, uh, as I say, through the Word of God and through the working of God in my life. I hope that helps. Yes, sir. Thank, thank you for your time. It's, it's something I've wrestled with for a number of years. I feel like I'm in the crossfire of different camps of, of Christianity and theology, and um, it, it just seems very it just seems very difficult for me to get settled in what I believe and why, and to really maintain that in a humbling fashion when I face theological opposition. And so thank you for your, your, uh, your answer, Dr. Brown. I do appreciate it. Yep, you are very welcome. Sure thing, Eugene. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go over to Kevin in, Flor in California. Sorry, welcome to the line of fire. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, my question is about uh, the book of Exodus, mm -hmm. chapter 12, chapter 16, and chapter 19. Okay. On those three chapters, uh, we can see that this, the seven-day Sabbath was on the 15th day of the month, and those were three months in a row. Um, uh, so it, it's teaching that the the seven-day Sabbath uh, has to be funded with the lunisolar calendar. And uh, uh, why is it that nobody can uh, accept that? Well, uh, Kevin, in uh, Judaism follows the lunar calendar, and it, it has what are called intercalary months because things shift over a period of time. But that that's uh, So you have to add in uh, some extra weeks to balance things out because of the difference between a lunar calendar and a solar calendar. The months are set by a lunar calendar in Judaism. So that means, for example, that, that you could have Passover one year in mid-March, one year in late March, one year in early April, uh, because it's, it's functioning based on the lunar calendar. And then, like I said, you have to every so often make up for things Otherwise, you, it, would, it would keep shifting so that you now have Passover. It could be in June or July or, or November. So, so you, you shift things every so often, and that balances out. Uh, look up lunar calendar in Judaism or intercalary months, intercalary months, and that will explain how the system works and when things are added in to, to make up 
for the difference in time because ultimately the world runs based on a solar calendar. So if you're going to function based on a lunar calendar, then uh, it's, it's going to uh, need to have periodic adjustment. Yeah, but that's uh, the new moon is still something that's recognized in Judaism, and that's how each new month begins. Hey, thank you for the call. I do appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. And for those that want to follow the Seventh-day Sabbath, you just follow the Seventh-day Sabbath. It's still solar calendar, lunar calendar. Either way, every seven days is every seven days. That part does not change. Okay, we will be right back on the other side of the break, eager to take as many calls as possible. By the way, if you get in now, we will get to your call before the show is over. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Line of Fire. We devote this day to your questions. You've got questions, we've got answers. Any question of any kind that ties in with our broadcast in any way, by all means, go for it. We've got a couple lines open, 866 866- Three four eight seven eight eight four. Let's go to Joseph in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Doctor Brown. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. So I've been studying Mark sixteen and came across a bunch of studies that say that the long ending shouldn't even be in the Bible. I was wondering what your thoughts are with that. Right. So to give the background for everyone. Mark 16, verse 8, uh, ends quite abruptly. Uh, People are fearful, and there's questioning. This is after reports of the resurrection have come from the women. And if you grew up reading King James, you just go on and read verses 9 through 20, which end with the commission to to go and, and preach the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be damned. And these signs will follow those that believe. And that includes speaking in new tongues, uh, laying hands on the sick, picking up serpents and not being hurt, drinking a deadly poison. It won't kill and goes out. Powerful ending. So uh, the vast majority of scholars, New Testament scholars, agree that verses 9 through 20 were not the original ending of Mark. Why? Uh, the, the manuscript evidence overwhelmingly says that as we have Mark's gospel, it ends in verse 8, and the syntax changes. There's suddenly a change in subjects, talking about somebody in verse 8, somebody else in verse 9, uh, and then there's vocabulary that's used in verses 9 through 20, which is not typical Mark in vocabulary. There's also a shorter ending of Mark. You'll find it like RSV or something like that, but it, it's, it's not as commonly known. Uh, my view is that we don't have the original ending of Mark, but that we do have authoritative gospel words that were added by perhaps another apostle or apostolic witness that verses 9 through 20 are gospel truth 
but are not the original ending of Mark and that we can learn from them and preach them provided that we explain that this is not the original ending of Mark. So in other words, I believe what's written there is true and can be supported by Scripture uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament uh, with the question, the one question being that drink any uh, deadly thing it won't hurt them. Can we support that elsewhere in the New Testament? But everything else, speaking in tongues, laying hands on the sick, driving out demons, even picking up snakes, this happens to Paul and the island of Malta in Acts 28. Uh, these things we can support going into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing, etc. cetera. Uh, Professor Craig Keener, who's working on what may become the fullest commentary on Mark that's ever been written, he believes that Mark intentionally ended at verse 8. Now, he knows so much more about Mark than I do. He's been immersed in it now for years, and he's such a great scholar already, that he believes it ends in verse 8, and it's saying, okay, now you go. You go share the message. That it's intentionally abrupt and what? So, again, he's got far more scholarly investment in Mark than I do, but that's not been my view. My view has been we don't have the original ending, but verses 9 through 20 are an early ending from the early church, perhaps even apostolic, just not Mark's original ending. We should have it in our Bible, but in brackets. We should have it, but with a clear note saying this is not the original ending of Mark. Would you say it's inspired or not? Ah, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? I personally believe right. that it is, but I cannot say it dogmatically because of textual evidence and questions. Therefore, I cannot bring it to the whole church and say, based on this, we do this. Based on this, we hold this doctrine. Right. I must support it elsewhere. So I personally believe it's inspired, but I cannot make that a dogmatic statement for the whole body as, as authoritative scripture. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Just shooting as straight as I can, Joseph. Thank you so much. All right. Eight, six, six, three, four truth. Let's go to Brian in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to the line of fire. Are you there? Okay. Somehow Brian's not there. His question for me was, have I ever read the book of Enoch? I have studied parts of the book of Enoch and read much of Enoch. Of course, there are, there are really different books and then different uh, linguistic traditions. In other words, we have Aramaic fragments from Qumran. The, the full Enoch that we have, the first, is, is Ethiopic in the Ge'ez language, an ancient Semitic language. So uh, a translation, perhaps a translation of a translation. Uh, I've got some critical editions of Enoch. But did I, have I read all of it? Probably not, which is kind of remarkable, right? Uh, just because some of it is so esoteric and, and out there. But, of course, quite familiar with the context, uh, contents of Enoch. They're, you know, they're supergraphical books, as I've thought about it, that I, I've read in and familiar with and can talk to you about. But did I read it beginning to end? In some cases, not. And I think, well, how'd that happen? I got I to gotta fill that blank in. Hey, thank you. For the question, even though you couldn't stay for the answer. And, and uh, team, guys, we may grab a few questions from YouTube or Facebook. So if, if folks are posting, I know they don't have time to do that on a Friday, but perhaps we can grab some YouTube or Facebook questions today as well. All right, uh, let's go to Dory in Toronto, Canada. Welcome to the line of fire. Or Toronto, California, sorry. 
Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, God bless you, Dr. Brown. It's your right, Toronto, Canada. You got it right. All right. Okay. That's. I, I thought maybe this is okay. Toronto in, in California. I wasn't familiar with. All right. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. So in Luke eleven thirty four, it says, "The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness." So my question is, can you kind of just like um, explain this verse to me a little bit, and also? Why does the word eye, why is it singular? Because New Agers use this verse to say that they're talking about the third eye. So can you clarify that for me, please? Yeah. Okay. There's absolutely no thought whatsoever about a third eye. That There's no thought of that. That's not a concept that was there in the Jewish world, that you had the, the mystical third eye of the New Ager. Absolutely not. But uh, just like when Jesus says, if your right eye offends you, cut it out, throw it away. You know, why the right eye? Don't you see also with the left eye? So just singling out one here, it's just the eye as that part of the body that sees. Just like the ear. If I say the ear hears, do I mean one ear or both ears, right? Both ears. Right, exactly. So the eye sees. The eye is the lamp of the body. So there, there are two different ways to read this. The same with the parallel in Matthew, the sixth chapter. One is straightforward, saying that, that what you see and taken through the eye gate now affects the whole of the body. And if what you take in is good and healthy and right, that your whole life will now be affected. There will now be light on the inside. So your, your whole life will be illuminated. If what you take in is dark, defiling, then your whole being will be dark and defiled. It's like a, a call that I remember once a gentleman called in and said that as a new believer, he knew that he immediately had to stop doing drugs and getting drunk and living the way he was living, sleeping around, etc. But then he started to ask himself, okay, what about watching this entertainment? What about these movies? And he said, okay, is it light or is it darkness? And he said pretty soon he started cutting out a lot of the things that he used to take in because he realized this was darkness and it was polluting his life. So that's the most straightforward way of reading it. Some have argued, especially in Matthew 6, where there's a context of covetousness, storing up earthly treasures, putting our heart in this world, that good eye, bad eye, is in reference to a Hebrew idiom meaning generous or stingy, which would make more sense in the context of, Luke's, uh, of, of Matthew 6 than in Luke 11. And saying if your eye is good, meaning if you are generous, then, then that has one effect. If you are stingy, that has another effect. And the argument would be that that was a known Jewish idiom. So it, it's possible, but not necessary to interpret it like that. And again, different Hebrew vocabulary or Greek vocabulary, excuse me, could have been used to emphasize that point more. But just reading it in a straightforward way, the eye is the gate of the body in that regard. What you see, what you take in, what you ingest. If it's good and healthy, your whole life, your whole body, your whole life will be good and healthy. If it's bad, it will pollute your whole being. Pretty, pretty straightforward right. in that regard. All right? Amen. Thank you, Dr. Brown. You are very welcome. Thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. So I just want to go over to Matthew 6 for a moment and tell you what. I'm, I'm going to read this to you from the complete Jewish Bible, all right? Why is this making me sign in as if I'm a stranger here to my software? Something must have shifted here. Okay, 
So I want to go over to David Stern's uh, translation, and this is the, uh, the Jewish New Testament, which now became then expanded into the complete Jewish Bible. And I just want to see how he renders this here. Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if you have a good eye, that is, he has in brackets, if you are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if you have an evil eye, in brackets, if you are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So it, it's possible, again, because the context is, next verse, no one can be a slave to two masters, for he, he will either hate the first and love the second or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money or God and mammon. So in that context, generosity, stinginess, those concepts could fit there. But would that characterize your whole body being full of light? Mm, maybe not. So again, there's debate. I wrote about this well, back in the 90s, interacting with some scholars in Israel who were trying to, to retrovert the teaching of Jesus back to an alleged original Hebrew and look at idioms involved. It's, it's a worthy exercise, but one that we have to really sift through and an academic level. Okay, we will go straight back to the phones on the other side of the break, starting with our buddy Eddie in Connecticut, 866-348-7884. Remember to visit AskDrBrown.org today. We've got political seduction of the church ready to send out when everyone sees the title. It's like, whoa, talk about a timely book. So friends, it's probably one of the most timely books I've ever written. I want to get it out to as many of you as possible. So go ahead and get your pre-ordered, signed, numbered copies from the first printing. We'll be sending them out at the beginning of the next week. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to the Line of Fire. We go straight to the phones. 866-34-TRUTH, starting with Eddie in Connecticut. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Dr. Brown, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks for asking. Yeah, a lot of fireworks this week in our study. Uh, the topic was, Dr. Brown, we're reading in Luke, the prodigal son. Jesus told the story. Yeah. And what I said was, I said, what's the, jumping out at me, I said, guys, was in the New Testament, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. He says he's the door, the gate. you got to go through him. But in that story, he, to he told the story that all you got to do is repent and return to the Father. There was no middle, there was no, you could just go back to the Father. So I'm thinking about if the people that at that time heard that story, that were listening to Jesus say that, they must have went home and said, okay, you hear that son, what he said to this guy? If you screw up, you come back, you repent, and you return to the Father, and he forgives you. Now, if a couple of weeks went by and Jesus was crucified and he rose from the dead, and we didn't know it, and then we're walking down the street and I seen the guys that were at the prodigal son message, and I said, uh, yeah, we heard Jesus that day, and they said, uh, oh, no, it's all different now. And I'd say, what are you talking about? We don't just go to the Father? Well, you could, but you got to go through him now. And I would say, you know what? We're just going to stick with what Jesus said. It's almost like he spoke against himself there. Yeah, so, so here's, yeah, Eddie, I, that, uh, 
that's a great question that you raised, and I don't ever remember hearing someone raise it. Number one, the purpose of the parable is the purpose of the parable, right? Very simple. Right. And, and that, that God eagerly looks for the one that's lost, uh, be it the lost sheep, be it the lost coin, be it the lost son. You know, it's a threefold parable with the same message. There's great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The Father gladly welcomes them back. So that's a, that's a glorious truth, period. You know, John the Immerser, right. when he was preaching, preached repentance, people getting right with God. Jesus commended that. So each thing has its own function, and that's an eternal truth that, that remains an eternal truth. Now, as things unfold, we learn the rest of the message. Look, even when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, where is that in the Gospels, just in terms of that actual statement? Well, that's John 14, which is in the last days of Jesus' life here on the earth. So it's not to say that he never taught that, but the first time that that statement is recorded, it's, it's towards the end of his life. So the whole thing was for him to teach these glorious truths, get that message out, and then die for our sins, rise from the dead. Now that that's happened, we can point to that. Now that that's happened and, and said, look, because a, a traditional Jew knew they had Day of Atonement, they had all these things, that was, that was never in debate, right? Jesus wasn't saying, oh, you just go straight to the Father. You don't need Day of Atonement. You don't need to go to the temple. You don't need to fast. You don't need to pray. No, no. It, it's just one gospel truth that's being conveyed there. So now with his death and resurrection, God's shouting to the world, okay, this is how I'm doing it. It is, it is through the cross. So you can come to me through what he's done. You don't need to come through the temple system. You don't need to go through so, some other way. The way has been made. But, but even so, Eddie, the way is made for us to go straight to the Father, right? Uh, it is through him, through what he did, but through him, that's the door we go through to get to the Father. So I would say the short answer is each, each parable has its own purpose. Each teaching has its own purpose. And Jesus didn't teach everything to everybody. He prepared the way. He taught the ways of the kingdom of God. He, he, he laid out God's standards and then spoke about his, his impending death. And now that he dies and rises, the rest of the message can be told. And this is how we do it. And the fact that God raised him from the dead, God is shouting to everyone, okay, listen, listen, this is important. And now miracles are happening in his name by the Spirit. This is establishing the truth of the gospel and saying this is how we can get right with God. But Eddie, valid question. We just need to understand the purpose of each parable and you know what thrills me? You guys have been together all this time, all through all the back and forth and argument debate. So, sounds like a great Bible study. All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, let us go to uh, Gia in Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. Hello. Oh, no, you pronounced it correctly. How are you today? Doing well, thanks. That's good to hear. Well, uh, my question is, um, where is the Garden of Eden uh, on Earth? Right. So we don't know for sure. Let me start there. Uh, and, and if there is a specific place where the original Garden of Eden was, what is there now is, is a separate question. So let's, let's try to answer where was the Garden of Eden. Most scholars posit that it, it was somewhere in what would be Iraq today. Uh, you know, you, you do have a reference that could potentially put it more in Africa. 
but then the other rivers mentioned wouldn't wouldn't work. So either way, there's some questions. I had always thought, without studying it in depth, that it's it's likely that it originally was somewhere in what is Iraq today, so ancient Babylonia and Assyria. That being said, one of my colleagues, very astute, very deep in the word, uh, believes that it was originally in what is now Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asked me if I've ever studied it. I said, I have never studied it in depth. And he said he really thinks he can make a strong case for it. So that got me wondering about it. I, I don't know how it would work based on, on the rivers that are mentioned in Genesis 2. That's how we get the location, um, that it mentions the four rivers there. And that would seem to put it more in, in Mesopotamia than in what is now the land of Israel. But I've never studied the argument in depth. So I have to do that when my friend and I get together. Okay, very interesting. Uh, would you mind if I asked one more question? No, go ahead. So, in America, there were um, what people call the Native American Indians. Yes. Um, there are uh, people who think or who believe that there were already people, Jew- Jews, um, Israelites, here in America. Like, America was the promised land for Israelites. I might be wording this incorrectly, but they were already... That, that some, yeah, some of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 10 that were scattered, that some of them made their way to America. That's what Mormons would, would basically hold. And they'd Mormon. point to uh, Hebrew inscriptions and things like that. Where did these come from? Uh, the problem with that is that DNA testing says no to that position. In other words, that alleged inscriptional evidence, and look at how far back this goes, that that has been very strongly refuted by DNA evidence saying, no, they are not part of the lost tribes of Israel. So you may just want to check Native Americans, DNA, Israel, and you should get some good data on that. Hey, thank you for asking. Much appreciated. Um, Trevor in Corona, California, in case I don't get to your call, how to stay positive for revival. We have no choice. We must have revival. And the fact that the hunger and desire is in our heart means that God is putting it there. God is aiding it. And I would encourage you to read a book like my book, Revival or We Die, or other books about revival that would stir your heart and raise your vision. And then you say, God, do it again. Just wanted to make sure I gave you that word of encouragement. And the more time you spend in God's presence, the more faith is built for these things. I do believe that we will see great awakening, but perhaps in the midst of great shaking. All right, uh, let's go to Eric in Atlanta, Georgia. Time is short, so please dive right in. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Hey, Mrs. Michael Brown? Yes, it is. Sorry, hey, my name is Eric. How you doing today, sir? Doing great, but we're short on time, so you better sorry, dive yep, in yep, with sorry, the question. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, quick question for you. Uh, yeah, I posted an article recently about uh, a preacher who got his YouTube suspended for, um, basically, for whatever reason it was, and he wrote in the article that it was a gay man who uh, got the uh, article, accor- or got yeah, the channel so, shut down. Yeah, Eric, so according to this person, right, so what mm-hmm. I said was according to the street preacher, that right. there was a gay man that had been harassing him, and he had a uh, uh, a court order restraining didn't mention any names and it was all alleged yeah 
that article right. was taken down anyway. Yes. Yeah, for other reasons. Yeah, but, but it's still but it's still on other it's still on other websites. And I just wanted to say that um, all you have to do is refer back to this Street Preacher's uh, Facebook and YouTube, and he actually mentions me by name. Yeah. So Eric, here's the thing: I did not mention you by name. I have no idea who you are. I don't know anything about you whatsoever, where you live, whatever. And anyone that has that article up has it up against our express wishes. Can't force people to take the article down, but that article was removed within hours of going up for reasons completely unrelated. So in any case, journalistic integrity, there is no problem with saying so-and-so has made such-and-such a claim and not mention any name in association with that whatsoever. All right? So if you have an issue, it would be with you and that particular street preacher. But unfortunately, sir, to now call in and identify yourself, now people are wondering, who is this guy? Now they're going to think the worst of you. So the best thing to do, because still nobody knows there are plenty of Eric's living in Atlanta. No one has any idea who you are whatsoever, okay? And they don't know who the street preacher is. They're, and they're not going to be doing research on it for some random situation. Let the thing go. The more you draw attention to it, the more you are now defaming yourself. Why on earth would you want to do that? All right? If there's truth to what's been said about you, get right with God. If it's false, hey, no one knows who you are. No one knows who they're talking about. Move on with life. Don't defame yourself and draw attention to yourself unless there is something going on that you're trying to hide. So may the Lord help you to walk with him in a way that honors and pleases him. And don't stir up a hornet's nest that's only going to hurt your own reputation. All right. Bless your friends. Be well. Back with you on Monday. Another program powered by the Truth Network.